Well, good morning. My name is Steve, undercover pastor here at H2O. I get to teach here every once in a while, and it is a blessing to be here this morning. Um, I would say that if you're new with us today, you picked a great day to come. Uh, we're, we're right on part two of uh, controversies, so we're talking about controversial things, and this morning is no exception. So um, I would say that I want to, you to pay attention to the screen when it says that this sermon, it, it has been approved for all audiences, but I would use parental discretion. It's PG-13. Um, we won't start with PG-13, we'll start with G, but the topic is pornography. And so uh, we're going to move into a space where we'll be talking about real, real things that make a difference to all of us. They have an impact on us as singles, they have an impact for us as married, they have an impact for us as parents and grandparents uh, as we are growing up in this society. And so um, let's just take a moment and, and pray, ask God. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I trust you that every man and woman here today is here because you've brought us. We're here because you have something you want to speak to our hearts. We're here because you care for us, you love us, you want to touch us. And so we ask you, Lord, today to touch our hearts, touch our spirits, invite us into the reality of your sacredness, your grace, your truth, as we wrestle with this topic. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so um, the truth is, uh, I, I look funny when I run. Um, it's, it's just how it is. Uh, I was a swimmer long before I ever ran. I started running so that I could have more endurance while I was swimming. And there's something about my, when my feet are going that my arms feel like they need to be going too. I don't know what it is. They tend to flail around. I look funny when I'm running. I have this muscle memory that wants me to push myself through the air even though here I know that's not going to happen at all. I, I look funny. Here's a clip. day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. So I ran to the end of the road, and when I got there, I thought maybe I'd run to the end of town. President Carter, suffering from heat exhaustion, fell into the arms and of when I got there, days. I thought maybe I'd just run across Greenbow County. And I figured since I run this far, maybe I'd just run across the great state of Alabama. I don't know how they captured that footage uh, of me back when I was 13, and, uh, and yet I, I looked about like that, arms filleting and everything. I had a coach in middle school that was really, really helpful, uh, and I was uh, swimming, and also I was running, and I told him I was running, and he watched me run, and he chuckled a little bit, and he said, you know you're not doing yourself any favors. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. He said, you're not very fast. I said, I, I know I'm not very fast. He said, I've got 10 guys that don't know how to run and they're faster than you. And I was like, thank you, um, that's really, really helpful. He said, but you got lots of energy. 
And, uh, and so uh, it was about, it became about figuring out how to direct that energy better. He invited me to look at my running through a number of different lenses. He said, look, if you look through that lens aerobically, you're not doing yourself any favors. Aerobically, you you're, you're have so much going on up here, you're kicking yourself into anaerobic really fast, so that's not helping you. If you want to look at speed, um, you've got so much going on up here, you're not actually focusing on putting your foot down and kind of rolling off through the toe, and, uh, and, and that's not helping you. If you want to look through the lens um, of fatigue, you're going to just wear yourself out on a long run because of all that's going on up here. You need to calm down. And he was like inviting me to kind of look through all these different lenses and to recognize I could be helping myself a lot of different ways and I wasn't. And so, sorry about this, I'm uh, trying to get this so that it will, will not drop down. There we go. And um, he's, he was like, your hands uh, are really, really tense, uh, and, and I want you to just kind of relax them. Hold them as, as if you're holding, like, eggs gently without crushing them, but just kind of let them loose. Don't flail, just let them loose, because tension kind of tightens you up, and it's not going to help you running. When you think about your shoulders, your shoulders shouldn't just be kind of flopping all over, uh, you, and they shouldn't be tense. They should just kind of be relaxed, your hands down at your, ra at your waist. And so he coached me on all these different lenses to look through. And, and these days, um, I even believe that uh, it's true when my doctor says, uh, I'd rather you didn't run once a week for an hour. I'd rather you walked 20 minutes three times a week. And I tune into that. And, and then if I do run, I tend to slow down a little bit. I'm not quite as flaily. I still look funny, okay? But, uh, but I, because I've been offered some different lenses to look at it through, I've been able to shift and be able to go into it with a little bit more self-awareness, a little bit more self-control, and it makes a difference on how I run. So we are today going to take my coach's advice, and we're going to look at a difficult topic through a number of different lenses. Uh, it's not that any one of those lenses is wrong, it's that they all speak something, okay? Uh, am I tense? Am I loose? Am, uh, am I be, being able to breathe well? What's helping me run better? We want to take a look at this tough topic of pornography. And one of the challenges we face in American Christianity is we tend to look at only two lenses. We look through the lens that says, uh, pornography is the tool of Satan. It degrades women. It shipwrecks men. Those who expose themselves should it, to it should be ashamed and stop it. Okay, right? Okay. And there's that other lens that we look at that says, oh, it kind of fits in, you know, there's alcoholism and there's uh, gambling addiction and there's uh, porn addiction and it kind of fits in all of that and, and we should kind of mo more move alongside uh, people that are in, in a recovery mode and grace and kind of more like uh, pity them as victims and recognize that they need help. And those two things are the two uh, windows that we tend to look at this hard topic through. And Jim has invited us uh, last week, as we're looking at this series, this, this series on controversial topics, to use our brains a little bit more, to dig in and be able to um, look underneath some of the challenges that we're facing. And I recognize that even as we're looking at the topic today, each one of us in this room are at a different place. Maybe you'll find yourself, as we're talking about it, going, oh, 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 rats, that's me. Maybe you'll be looking at it through the lens of, this is really hard to even be here because I've been hurt in this area of sexuality 
and, and it's hard to even hear these things. It's, you know, some of these things sound like excuses. And, and I just wanted to be open with you. We're going to look at about 15 different lenses, and, and I think they're all valid. And so as we look at one, it doesn't mean the others aren't valid. So today, uh, as we do that, um, we recognize that I can't even spend three minutes on each one of these lenses or we'd go significantly over time. So we're gonna move through them rather quickly. So if we're on something that's a tough topic for you, just know it's gonna be over soon. Um, if, if we're on something that you'd like to hear more about, just recognize, yeah, we probably could talk about it for an hour and we're just not going to this morning. So lens number one, <clears throat> sin. Is pornography sinful? Um, and the answer is yes. It is, or more accurately, no, it's not, but uh, it inevitably leads to sin. So in James uh, 1.15 we see, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There are things that bring lust, and as that lust is there, it brings forth sin. Okay, so scripturally, um, a picture is not sinful. Seeing a picture is not sinful. But as that lust rises and it gives birth to sin, yes, we move into sin. It's just helpful to know, biblically. Yes. Uh, is pornography sinful? Yes. So let's not pretend it's, you know, artistic expression. Um, it is lust that when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so um, when we look at these other lenses, again, we're not saying that one's not true. We're saying that's true. Let's look at some other ones too. Um, let's look at lens number two, the spiritual battle. Is there a spiritual battle component to dealing with pornography? And the answer is yes, there is. In 1 Peter, we read, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Engaging in pornography raises lusts, which actually brings our soul into the battle zone, right on the front lines. There's something that happens on a soul level dealing with lusts and pornography that brings our soul under fire. What does that mean? Well, our soul being under fire doesn't sound like a good thing, right? It's not. It affects us in so many different ways. It makes us more susceptible to other spiritual attacks. It affects how sensitive we are, for one, to truth and lies and being able to discern the difference, which brings us to the next lens, which is rationalization, the lens of rationalization. Does engaging in pornography accept my reasoning ability? And the answer is... Yes, an outgrowth of that spiritual attack, is an attack, that attack on my soul, is that we begin to have faulty reasoning that we think is fine. We think it's right reasoning. Reasoning something out based on untruths because we want it to be true. Okay, I, I don't like, I cringe that I'm qualified to talk about this today because of my own story. I cringe that I'm qualified to talk about this today because of my own story, both with pornography and with uh, sexual addiction and with sex outside of marriage. But I would say that it is very easy. As a young man, as a very young Christian, it was very easy 
for my girlfriend, who is also a Christian, and I to decide together that sex outside of marriage is fine. Sex outside of marriage is fine because we love each other and we're going to get married. And we didn't. And even if we had, sex outside of marriage is still not okay. And at, but, but it became okay to us because we rationalized it. We wanted it to be true. There was one point where we would even say that it's okay because we're married in God's eyes now that we've had sex. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it gets crazier and crazier the farther we go into it, right? Okay, but believe it or not, that's not too far off from how many men and women believe in this area. Okay? And rationalization starts building and building. The more our lusts are engaged, the more crazy our rationalizations become. If we were to make a list of some of the top rationalizations, it might sound something like, what? It's okay. I'm not hurting anybody. Rationalization. I can stop anytime I want. I stopped three times last month. Okay, rationalization. It's not as bad as having sex. Rationalization. My wife has been really worn out with the kids and work, or since we find that pornography is not a gender discriminator, my husband has been so worn out from kids and work, I'm actually being kind to them by engaging in pornography and taking care of this. Rationalization. The insidious reality. The more I rationalize, the harder it is for me to tell the difference between a truth and a lie. Rationalization, in its essence, is leaning into lies and therefore agreeing with the father of lies. In John chapter 8, we hear Jesus addressing this. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why do you not understand the truth? Why do you not understand what I am saying? Because you cannot, because you've given yourself over to lies, and every time you give yourself over to lies, it's harder to hear the truth. So what is true? What's true, lens number four, is sex carnal or sacred? Sex did not surprise God. God loves sex. God is the designer of sex. The truth is, sex is not a surprise. He designed it as a beautiful, sacred picture of two becoming one. One of the most beautiful pictures that we have in Scripture of the Lord's pursuit of us is him as a bridegroom longing for his bride, which is us, including us guys. Okay, so he's longing as a bridegroom, longing for his bride, and that there is a beauty in that togetherness that he longs for, and the picture is painted of oneness and togetherness and a bridegroom longing for his bride. And it's easy for us to miss. He longs for a pure, literally unadulterated relationship with us. It's so easy for us to fall in the trap that Jim outlined last week, 
of idolatry, putting our own views and opinions on the throne instead of the Lord's views and opinions. Sex is sacred. Your body is sacred. That woman's body in that picture, that man's body in that picture is sacred. It's been designed to picture in union a marriage covenant, the covenant the Lord has made with us. It's sacred, but it's not being honored in a sacred manner. And so let's look at lens number five. It brings us to degradation. What does pornography do to this sacredness? Pornography takes the human body, which was designed for dignity, dignity and moves it into a place of less than. It lowers its value. It falls short of the dignity that it was intended to. It's degraded, it's dishonored, it's defiled, and God's desire is just the opposite. We find in Hebrews 13, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God's desire is for sex to be honored in this sacred covenant between a man and a woman. That it would be honored. It would be in the context of marriage and for us not to defile, degrade, or dishonor that place of dignity that he's created for it. And so somehow or other, we get all this. We get all these different things, kind of even if we're, if we're somewhat rationalizing, we get that there is this place of dignity and, and there is that thing that causes something to happen inside of us when we are part of lowering it. And when we are part of degrading it, when we are part of making it less than, something happens inside of us and it brings us shame. And so lens number six is shame. How does shame fit in? So um, under normal circumstances, uh, if we're not rationalizing too much and we get that uh, there is this difference, we know these five lenses, even if we can't say, I know that verse, we kind of get that there's something that doesn't resonate well when I'm jumping into something that is taking this sacred piece and treating it in an unsacred manner. Something's amiss. So when our lusts are engaged and we sin, we feel shame and we feel guilt. Remember Brene Brown saying that, hey, guilt is I've done something wrong, and sometimes that's as far as my brain can go, and sometimes it goes to a deeper place that says I am something wrong. Because of what I'm doing and I can't get out of it, something must be wrong with me. I am something wrong. And this guilt and shame sets us up for something. The most significant outgrowth of shame is, lens number seven, isolation, okay? The effect of shame, shame isolates. It has that screaming thing that says, no one can know about this, right? No one can know, I can't tell anybody, this is too bad, I won't be accepted, it won't be okay, they'll think less of me. I'd feel even more shame if anybody knew about this. And that ends up trapping us. We end up being trapped because this isn't something that any one of us can get out of by ourselves. We can't do it. I've never seen it happen. I want to circle back to rationalization just for a second and, and highlight one. One kind of rationalizing that has sort of like its own lens all by itself, okay? And that's the lens of entitlement. 
It's a kind of rationalization that deserves its own space because it's so intense and so powerful. When I've rationalized enough to justify in my own mind, it's okay, it's just a little, or whatever my favorite rationalization of the day happens to be, okay, so I've got my rationalizations going, and I've engaged in it long enough to have kind of a normal rhythm in my life that keeps that going, my brain starts a speci uh, specific, that's a word that's really hard to say, specific kind of rationalization, entitlement. Entitlement is that main voice, the main voice is me. It's about me and what I deserve. I've had a long day at work, I deserve a little break. Entitlement. My boyfriend has been an especial jerk. I deserve a little pampering. Entitlement. I've been really good all week. I deserve just a little. Entitlement. So I deserve has its very, very close friend I need. And both of these are the two voices of entitlement. I need, if you don't use it, you'll lose it, so I better use it. I need to, okay? That's not true, that's entitlement, that's a rationalization. I've been so stressed with the kids, I need to relax so I can be present with my spouse. Yeah, rationalization, entitlement. The truth is, these rationalizations come in so easily, so fluidly, don't they? We want to believe them when they start kind of being whispered in our ear. We go, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah, I think that's true. That was, I don't care what that was, whatever. That was so unfair. I need to blow off some steam. Entitlement. This place in life is too hard. I, I need a break. I need something for relief. Entitlement. Remember, in rationalization, I lean into lies. I deceive myself. I lean into something that's not true, purposely believing that it's true. I want to invite you to listen to that voice in all of those entitlement phrases. That, that voice that says something like, I'm in pain. I'm disrupted, I'm hurting, I need a break. You can hear it, can't you? And that brings us to lens number nine, medicating. I'm too disrupted, I need something to ease the pain my heart's in is another way that whether we're using that term or not, that's where our brain is going. And we seek to disrupt, I'm sorry, we seek to medicate our disrupted heart. We're looking at pornography today, right? Okay, so, but we could be talking about alcohol. We could be talking about a harder drug. Honestly, we could be talking about Netflix, chocolate, okay? So there's a lot of things we could be talking about. Sorry to offend some of you, but yes, almost anything we can grab a hold of and use to make ourselves feel better, to medicate this painful place that our heart is going in. There's nothing wrong with watching a show or two after a long day. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine or a beer, as long as it doesn't trigger addiction in you or in somebody else, cause somebody else to stumble. It becomes a problem when I'm robbing myself of growing in the skills that I need to deal with that disruption in a healthy way. 
It becomes a problem when my drug of choice is also one that degrades, shames, leads to lies, and leads me into sin. That's when it becomes a problem. If medicating is my main goal, think about it. How far short have I fallen from God's call for me? His goal for me. His goal for me is to love him and love others. And my goal is to stop feeling pain at whatever cost. And that's something we need to ask ourselves. What cost? It doesn't just end with a little medication because it takes on a life of its own. Any of you guys ever, you know, sat down to check in on Facebook? You sit there, you're kind of like, oh, that's interesting, that's cool. And an hour later, the phone rings, and you're like, where did that hour go? Okay, that happens, right? Or, or Pinterest, okay? There are certain boards on Pinterest that I can, that can they just pull me in, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to bed at 9 o'clock, and, and here it is, 10.30, and I'm, and I'm glued to the next thing that's coming up on Pinterest. Okay, so, sorry. That's just how it is. Um, where did it go? That's because of lens number 10, which is called the hunter brain. Your brain is always looking for something new, something intriguing, something that it's never seen before, something that might be fun, something that might be interesting, something that might be tantalizing, something that might be scary. It's just always looking for something new. Who likes same old, same old? Okay, Paul found this when he was in Athens, right? He'd go to that place where everybody was talking. All they spent all day doing was talking about the latest philosophy. And so you can go after that in lots of different ways. That kicks in with pornography as well. The challenge is that means what worked for me yesterday isn't going to work for me today. What worked for me last week or last month doesn't have the same kick to it. I have to go find something new. And my brain goes on a search, and lots of time can go by. Hours focused on my own selfish desires. Hours where the most important person in the world to me is me. It's just good to call it what it is, right? Self-absorbed, selfish, narcissistic. Okay, that's me on porn. And that hunter brain isn't satisfied. So I need more time the next time, and I need it again, and I need it again. And it leads to that next lens, which is habit, lens number 11. Habit or self-control or lack of self-control. The rhythm the hunter brain wants is a consistent diet. It's going to manipulate, it's going to rationalize, it's going to plead, it's going to scream at you, it's going to all those kinds of things until the input is fairly consistent, and it's consistent at an increasing rate until it becomes a habit. It's not just a rhythm that I do sometimes, it becomes habitual. And a habit is hard to break no matter what kind of habit, right? Because it affects our neuropathways. It lays down a road in our brain that says, this is the way to go, don't go that way, go this way. It's easier, better, you gotta do this. It's hard to break out of that. The more we go down that road, the deeper that neuropathway gets, the, it, you can call it a rut, and it becomes more and more difficult to steer out of that rut. It doesn't matter what the habit is, right? Habits are just hard to break. It can be about biting my nails, cracking my knuckles, searching for dancing kitties on YouTube. I mean, whatever my habit is, it can be hard to break. If anybody's seen a 
never mind. <laughs> and when you add a chemical component, like alcohol, like drugs, like sex, we're fighting an even more difficult battle to change that habit. And that leads us to our next lens, which is the lens of compulsion and addiction, number 12. You know, we could take a whole time and just talk about addiction. It begins to have a life of its own. It's about this cycle that starts with some kind of disruption happening. And as that disruption is happening, I don't like it. And I found something that helps me feel better. And so I need to do something to feel better. And I start what's called my own ritual. And my own ritual might be booting up my computer. My own ritual might be finding a way to be alone. My own ritual might, it might have like 10 different steps in it, calling to make sure I have an excuse not to show up on time or whatever else. And so I'm clearing the path for my ritual to be able to, be, to live out. And then I'm, I'm getting more and more stirred up. And there's a point where I can't stop and I act out. And once I act out, there's this moment of euphoria and then significant guilt and shame, which, by the way, is very similar to the disruption that I was feeling before. And so there's this coasting that happens that I'm dealing with this shame and I'm trying to just kind of white knuckle through it and make it happen. And then I get to this place where it's too much disruption and I need something to break that disruption. And there's this cycle that keeps on kicking it around and around and around. And I have learned, did, so um, addiction doesn't, ha like with heroin addiction, addiction does not start at the first use. Okay, if I'm disrupted and I'm hanging out with a buddy who does heroin and that buddy says, hey, needle equals euphoria. Come try this, buddy. And so I decide, ah, why not? I try this and I feel euphoric. No more pain, I feel this instead. That feels really good. Okay, that's not addiction. I go through life for a while, something else happens and I feel disruption. Okay, then what happens in my brain is I don't like this, I want that. What gets me there? This. This is gonna get me there and so this is what I need to do and that becomes the focus of my attention. And so if that needle is what got me there, then the needle becomes the focus of my attention, and that's where addiction starts, okay? So in whatever addiction we are dealing with, I have an addiction of coffee that I married, and it really stinks because now my wife can't drink coffee, and I'm left with this horrible, terrible, painful, amazing addiction. <clears throat> and um, so addiction has this life of its own and it carries and it. And if I don't do it, I, I feel things, headaches and irritability and all those things that go on with withdrawal and it starts kicking itself around that cycle and it's harder and harder to break. So, um, scripturally, we don't use the word addiction, do we? But when scripture talks about strongholds, that's what it's talking about. And 2 Corinthians says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. These strongholds is what we're talking about when we're talking about addictions. Something that is deeper than a habit, it is almost impossible to get out of. And this compulsive pattern um, affects 
are even brain functioning, which leads us to lens number 13, brain functioning. Dr. Voon, who works at the University of Cambridge, uh, says there are clear differences in brain activity between patients who have compulsive sexual behavior and healthy volunteers. These differences mirror those of drug addicts. And so we can't just pretend that doesn't happen. Okay, research says it does. And it's not just a piece of my brain that is affected, it's how my brain is affected. Lens number 14 is the brain chemistry. This is looking at it through the lens of heroin. The challenging thing is it's almost the same with sex addiction. Heroin is a potent opiate with an intense effect on the brain reward system. Heroin rings this rewards, rigs this reward system by influencing the production of feel-good chemicals in the brain, such as dopamine and endorphins. The same chemicals and brain activity are in compulsive pornography use. Heroin is one of the hardest habits to break, and so is sexual addiction. And so the question is, is there a way out? What if, what if this all sounds like me? What do I do with that? sounds hopeless. Lens number 15 is that there is a pathway out. Okay? If you're hearing this today and you've got that, oh, no, some of this stuff sounds like me, there's a pathway out, but it's likely different than what you've been doing. Or you'd be out, right? Um, it doesn't have anything to do with isolation. It actually has to do with pushing against that isolation. First off, it's helpful to know how bad is it? How, how far down this path have I allowed myself to go? Um, is it a habit? Uh, is it a stronghold or an addiction? How frequent is it? Uh, have I tried to quit? And how different, what different ways have I tried to quit? Have I chosen this over friendships at times? Sorry, I can't do that. And knowing I'm making an excuse, but I'm going to go to this instead. Have I ended up late at work or not followed through on projects or school or whatever else? And has it affected that? What have I lost as a result of this compulsive habit? The answers to some of those questions are, is the answer to how significant, how problematic is this. No matter what level it's at, it can be addressed through grace, through scripture, through not being alone. A key place to start is to push against that isolation, to push against the shame. Talk to somebody in your small group, your small group leader or your life group leader. Say something like, hey, you know, we had that teaching the second one, I think it was maybe, it was, maybe it was Steve that was talking. Can we talk about that? And start a conversation. Um, if that's me resonates, recognize that one of the hardest things about rationalizations, entitlement, medicating, is that it's, it's all there for a reason, right? It's all there because my heart's been in turmoil, my heart's been in pain, my heart's been disrupted, and I'm trying to find some way out of that, some way away from that. And I might not be very even clear how that happened, where those things came from. I might need some help unraveling some of that. Maybe it makes sense to talk to a counselor, help unravel it a little bit. If that's me resonates a little bit, recognize that you don't have to fight this fight alone. Fifteen years ago, a buddy, and me, a buddy of mine and I uh, found ourselves at this place. Um, we're starting to talk with each other about this shameful thing. We want to get out. We want help. We don't know what that looks like. We need help. And so we talked to a counselor, and that counselor said, yeah, I'll volunteer for 12 times to meet you guys early in the morning, and we'll talk about this. And we did. 
And a year and a half later, he said, you know, my wife says I can't keep doing this, um, but we're still running that group. And there's been man after man after man that has graduated from that group, um, and it's been healthy. It's been good. There's been hope. But it's not a battle we can fight by ourselves. We can't do it. I don't know how to do it. If you think maybe that would be for you, you can let me know. You know, we can meet individually over coffee. We can talk about some of your heart's journey. Uh, we can explore together if this is sort of more in the habit place or if it's more in the addictive place. We can sort that out. If you want to uh, not come up to me afterwards because it would be too embarrassing and everybody would be looking at you going, oh, I know why he's talking or she's talking to Steve right now, that's okay. Email me, okay? If you go into your bulletin, uh, into your program, uh, it's steve at h2ochurch.org. Or you can come up to me afterwards and you can say, oh, great, talk. And as you're shaking my hand, you can slip me a little piece of paper that has your name on it. It's fine, okay? I don't care. So whatever the way to get help, get help. Okay, you don't have to do it alone. It's okay. I don't care. And if you don't need help, great. If you don't have that this is me thing ringing, awesome. Hopefully today looking at a little bit more than just our two normal lenses has helped us all grapple with something that's really, really hard. This, this area affects us all, doesn't it? Okay, it's a, it affects us as singles. It affects us in marriages. If I have started a sexual addiction as a single, it doesn't disappear when I say I do. All of those same dynamics are still there. And by the way, if I'm a, if I'm a dad, if you're a mom, grandparent, our kids are growing up in this world where it is very accessible and it is hard to turn down. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life are common to all of us. It will be common to your son or daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter. And the battle's real. And we need to understand the different pieces of it so that we can know how to come alongside somebody. Maybe it's a friend of yours that you see some of these signs. They keep on canceling out with like no really good excuse. And then I find out, you know, they let slip a little bit. Yeah, I, I spun a little bit. And, and maybe you can help them have courage to talk to somebody and get some help. It affects us all. And there's a path out. So let's pray. Band, feel free to come on up. Lord, thank you for the sacred. Thank you for the sacred joining of two into one. Your plan for sex. Thank you for the sacred, the sacred that invites us into understanding the heart you have for us, that we would be one as you and the Father are one. Thank you for the truth. The truth that can battle those pieces of entitlement, those pieces of rationalizing. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that we're not alone, that there's other men and women who have carved out a healing path. Thank you for each man and woman here. As we wrestle with difficult topics in this series, may we boldly hold on to your truth and may we boldly embrace your grace. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.
and uh, <clears throat> I stole somebody's uh, music stand here, so I'm going to give it back. But as I am, I want to uh, invite us into, into engaging in communion. And we're going to take some time and we're going to remember the sacred the sacred reality that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, counts you being a part of his bride worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it to him to pay the price on the cross through his body and his blood. And I was praying through that earlier today. I just wanted to remember. Remember he chose me. Remember he paid the price. Remember he views me as his bride. Remember he's initiated this sacred contact, this sacred uh, covenant. And he washes us clean. He presents us clean because we are his cherished bride. And so in just a few moments, as Bobby's leading us, feel free to come forward and uh, take a cup take a piece of bread, and as you feel led, remember the Lord's gift to us, his sacrifice on the cross for our sins.